We're going to talk a little bit about healthcare and the idea of a national pharmacare program. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Aaron Woodrick, who is the executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've written about this, and certainly any time we're talking about health care, there is money involved. It's uh, where a good chunk of our current budgets go. Uh, there have been calls for a national pharmacare program. You've written about the cost of this, so maybe break down for us, if you can, the numbers as you see them. Yeah, you know, I wrote this piece because, as you say, the federal government, they have struck a commission to look into this. It's going to report, be reporting back in the spring. And I imagine with an election next year, uh, the federal government, this is going to be a topic in the next federal election over the next 12 months. Uh, Pharmacare, as you say, is a very expensive program. Prescription drugs are something that Canadians spend a lot of money on. In fact, uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office estimated uh, upwards of $28, $28 billion, um, of which something like $24 billion, the vast majority, would be covered by a hypothetical uh, universal plan that would sort of mirror our, our public uh, health care system. Um, this sounds great on paper. Uh, there's an argument that there's savings to be had because the government would be the sole buyer of the drugs. But I wrote this to simply point out there are there is some stuff in the fine print that we need to be careful about. Uh, one obvious thing is that if we're going to copy our health care system, um, as, as many strengths as it has and as, as many things about it as most Canadians like, there are problems with it. Um, there are people who fall through the cracks. Um, as well, you know, a system, uh, a one-size-fits-all system um, is going to have some downsides. It's going to mean we're not going to be able to cover as many drugs for as many people. Um, and in fact, in a lot of cases, two-thirds of Canadians are already covered by private plans that are more comprehensive than most public plans which already exist. So you could actually have more people covered, but they'd be covered for fewer things. Uh, and with the idea, what, is the committee looking at this as far as a national pharmacare program, would it be to replace the current programs? Many people, as you said, two-thirds of people or, or a lot of Canadians are covered for this through their work plans. Would it be to replace that? Yeah, that's the debate. Um, one of the models is to wipe that out entirely. And I think that's where our groups like ours get concerned. I think there's an argument, of course, Jill, there are some Canadians, especially low-income Canadians, who face like astronomical prices. If, you're, if you don't have any money and you have to pay $100,000, for example, for a drug, um, that's not acceptable. And that's the sort of thing that government should be looking at to cover. But for the vast majority of us, uh, there's something like 23 million Canadians who already have private sector plans, which are very good. It doesn't make sense to just wipe all of those out when we could look at a sort of filling the gaps approach instead and targeting the money at people who who really need it most. And what do you say to the argument, and I know there have been some comments on the opinion piece that you wrote, that the cost of letting people fall through the cracks, so the cost of not having people covered is is high as well in that through whether it's it's the cost, the actual dollars of somebody that then is hospitalized or isn't getting the right care. Well, yeah, and that's why I say it, it's this is fair game for the government to talk about. I'm not saying we do nothing on pharmacare. I'm thinking I'm saying two things. One, we need to be mindful of the cost. This is not a free lunch. There's going to be money involved here, and we need to be open about that. And the other is rather than focusing on everyone, let's just focus on the people, the people who are at risk of falling through the cracks. So if you know the vast majority of Canadians are doing fine under the current system, let's leave it intact for them. It's working for them, and let's focus our resources on the people that currently aren't doing very well in the current system. Do you think we put too much faith in the idea too? And and we're told this a lot of the time too, that under a system like this, the the discount that governments could get for bulk purchasing is that they would actually be getting these same drugs at a, at a lower price. 
Yeah, I think in some cases it's overestimated for a number of reasons. One is this already happens. There is already a group that uh, federal governments band together to, to negotiate lower prices. So it's not like it's already happening. The other thing to remember is they can only push prices down so far without some companies simply not offering drugs here. And that's already the case in certain circumstances. Um, you know, you can't force companies that own drugs to sell them here. And that's an even bigger problem than them being expensive is if, you know, governments try and push the price so low, the company simply says, we're just going to abandon the Canadian market. That That is a whole different problem, which is also a very serious one. And do, I don't know if your piece looked at this or if you've looked at this as well, but one of the issues uh, that uh, people have as well, and even on private plans, is the idea of generic versus name brand and that some drugs are covered, some aren't. Uh, my guess would be if it's a government run plan, uh, there's going to be more of a push or there's going to be a preference to go for the less expensive, more generic drug. Yeah, that will definitely be the case. And and not only more generic, but uh, just a fewer drugs overall. In fact, when we were looking at existing, there are some provinces like Quebec, for example, that already have a mandatory public plan for those who are not in a private plan. And on average, that, that plan covers less than half the number of drugs that are on a private plan. So in other words, you get broader coverage. You would have everybody covered under a theoretical universal system, but for fewer things. And so we have to make choices about, you know, uh, you can't cover everyone for everything. So you're going to cover more people for fewer things or fewer people for more things. It made me think uh, when reading this and, and when looking at this as well, it made me think of, it was a few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it, but Jim Carrey went off about how great the healthcare system is in Canada. And one of the comments he made, and I don't even remember who he was talking to, but one of the comments he made was, he said, growing up in Canada, he, his mother, you know, they were very, very poor and he, his mother never had to pay for prescription drugs. And I thought it was an odd thing to say because it either means you had, you had a private plan or you were on welfare. And and it, to me, it almost showed the gap in the system. It, it wasn't touting the system. It was showing this giant gap in the system because somebody in the middle would be paying for those drugs. Yeah, it's true. It's a, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about our system. And like, I, I, like most Canadians, I think our system is good, but it is also not a holy grail here. We get Sometimes when we try and have debates about healthcare issues in this country, emotions run really high and, and people sort of exaggerate on either side. But I think we need to be open about the fact that uh, there might be changes we need to make. And it doesn't always mean, as opponents say, looking at the United States. Uh, I don't think most people uh, point to the U.S. as an example. But there are lots of other countries, European countries, Australia, Japan, uh, that have mixed public-private systems. And in many cases, they deliver better results than our system. So I think it's fair game to look at them, see what works, and, and see how we can get best bang for a buck and, and best health care for Canadians. They certainly deliver better as far as if you look at the amount of money that is paid into the system. And, and I agree with you. Our system is a good one, but there are there are cracks in it. There are there are things in it that aren't great. And especially when you look at the amount of money we put in and the return we get for that. If we're looking at wait lists or, or we're looking at any uh, of the areas where certainly there is room for improvement. Yeah, wait lists are a big one. And, you know, it, you know, the American system is very expensive per capita, but ours is quite expensive, too. And as you say, many other countries, they spend less, get better results. And uh, I think the other thing we need to remember is for those who are concerned about egalitarianism, there's a lot of people who say, well, we need to be fair here. If your concern is sort of uh, keeping the rich people in our system, as it stands now, Jill, a lot of them just leave the country to go get health care, sells the border. So if you're concerned about queue jumping, it already happens. Uh, it, did they just leave the country to do it? Mm, uh, very, very true. Uh, what, what do you think the conversation then should be focused on when we look at pharmacare and for proponents of pharmacare? Is it looking at it rather than, you know, blowing out the current system? Is it, is it more of tinkering with the system and, and seeing what, where we could improve? 
Yeah, I think filling the gap is the best way to phrase it. They need to identify who, which groups are at risk, which Canadians are the ones that are you know, facing the biggest challenges under the current system, how much resources do we have available, and how do we target it best at them, rather than just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and trying to wipe out an entire system that's already serving about two-thirds of Canadians pretty well. Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime we look at a system where we take it out of the hands of business and, and suggest that maybe bureaucrats would be better at running it, uh, I think we need to stop and uh, take another look at that. Yeah, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in markets. I think uh, the, the record's pretty clear that markets are generally more efficient. That doesn't mean markets are perfect, and then it doesn't mean that sometimes governments need to intervene at the margins. But to throw out a system that's working quite well for most people uh, for ideological purposes would not only be foolish, it would also be very expensive. Uh, are you concerned, though, that it is going to be part of the next federal election and that people will, will glom onto this idea of pharmacare? Yes, it's great without really breaking down the numbers. It remains to be seen. I think most people recognize something like this would cost a lot of money, and and, and we still don't know yet what shape this will take. We know they're reporting in the spring. Um, I'm almost certain that the Liberal Party at least will be proposing something in their platform, but again, we don't know what model that. It may be a fill-the-gaps model. I'm hoping it is. Uh, It may also be something quite radical and very expensive, like uh, wiping out the existing market altogether. All right, so we will wait and see what the committee comes up with. Uh, Aaron, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yep, thanks for having me, Joe. We take a look at lighthouse keepers on the BC coast, and the union that represents lighthouse keepers says there is a shortage and even says that the shortage is critical. Well, Barry uh, Cheer is on the line with us, regional vice president for the Pacific region with the Union of Canadian Transportation Employees. Uh, Barry, I hope I'm saying your last name even close to what it is, but thank you for joining us on the program this morning. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're you're close enough. That's uh, that's one of the birds. <laughs> okay, uh, talk a bit about this. Uh, first all, first off, I think when people see this story, there was a bit of surprise uh, because I think there's uh, the thought that lighthouse keepers were cut back so much on BC that there aren't that many. Yeah, they're um, in in 2010. They were well for years. They were trying to uh, de and close the lighthouses and automate them all. And uh, in 2010, they uh, they had a a Senate Standing Committee that did a, uh, produced a report that uh, said that that, uh, that the staffing levels should be maintained um, and that they should come up with a, uh, a long-term policy for light stations. They realized the uh, the need for for light keepers on the uh, on the west coast here, and uh, so right now we have 54 staffed uh, 54 uh, keepers on 27 light stations, and. Uh, we have a relief pool, but unfortunately, because of attrition and this, and the fact that the government hasn't created a long-term policy, um, that we're down. We're down. We've burned up. All the relief keepers are already are active, so our, we have no pool of relief keepers for relief. And uh, we're at the point now where we're there. Look, they have had temporary closures of uh, of late. Now, the lights stay on, the keepers just aren't there. So you're not getting the weather reports, you're not getting the environmental reports. Um, you don't have the eyes on the water where you actually need them. And walk us through, that That touches on it a bit there, but walk us through, what does the job entail? Well, they do weather reports um, every three hours. They do, um, they they talk uh, they talk to the mariners out there by via radio. There's a lot of dead zones out there. A lot, I know a lot of people think that... Uh, you know, in the lower mainland here, we have self, we have awesome cell phone coverage, but uh, up in the north and up on the up on the waters there, there aren't that many 
you know, there's there's not that much cell coverage and there's not that much coverage. They have a lot of mariners that have uh, dead zones. Uh, their GPSs aren't working right. Uh, something's wrong with their boat and they're radioing into the lightkeepers and lightkeepers are guiding them into either their area or uh, or a safe area so they can make repairs or uh, find out where they are. Um, they also do environmental controls. They do environmental reports. Uh, they do, uh, you know, sampling. Um, you were just, you know, I was just listening uh, that you're going to have the LNG uh, talk later on. And well, with LNG coming up to Kitimat and the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, potentially uh, increasing traffic tenfold in the waterways, we need we need eyes on the water to make sure that they're safe. They also do um, tsunami warnings. They are part of the tsunami warning system. So, you know, if you're if they're not there. That's not there, and we're putting we're putting mariners and pilots at risk because pilots use them as a as a guide for uh, the constant weather changing. So they're looking for weather updates before they fly for medivacs or or uh, cargo up into the northern areas. And permanent positions is it a full time job? In that it seems like like if you're dealing with weather and dealing with mariners, it's not something that's nine to five. <laughs> definitely, definitely not nine to five. It's a staff lighthouse. There's usually two, two to a lighthouse. Um, there's a keeper and assistant keepers. Um, they work in shifts, and it's a twenty four seven job. You live on the lighthouse, um, and, the, and for these ones, you live on the lighthouse. And uh, so, yeah, it is a twenty four seven job. It's not, uh, you know, they work in shifts, but you know, when uh, when something happens, it's all hands on deck. So you're pretty well. You're, you're pretty well there. Twenty, you, know, you are there twenty four seven, and you're pretty well there on call all the time. And what is the pay like? Well, um, currently they're the lowest paid people in the public sector, is what I can say. There it is, is the pay is not great, but uh, you know at this point housing is included, so you're getting your housing. Um, it is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle change for people that uh, want to do it. It's not something everybody can do, and. Uh, so the recruitment has is the recruitment process has to be special because you've got to find the right people for the right job. Uh, definitely, uh, is it uh, is it an isolated or where the positions are right now? Uh, are they pretty uh, isolated positions in that it would have to be somebody as well who's okay living in the lighthouse and not being part of uh, say a bustling community? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 you and the assistant keeper, so you've got to get along, and it is. Um, there are, uh, I mean, it is uh, uh, air, air and water access for uh, for almost all of them, all those ones. Um, we have 27 uh, ones that are, or 24 that are only, that are air and access only. So you're either helicopter or boating in and out of them. Um, you're, it is a, it is an isolated job, definitely. There, uh, you know, you get to talk to the mariners, you get to talk to the pilots, but uh Human contact is very limited, so uh, yeah, it is definitely a, like I say, it is a lifestyle for certain people. And what kind of a background do you need to have to uh, qualify to be a lighthouse keeper? Um, it, it, it explains it on the website as to what, uh, on the Coast Guard website, they walk you through it. Um, you know, the uh, they should have, you know, they should be uh, two years of secondary school, Um Public Service Commission test approved. You have to be in good physical health. Um, you should have 
um, some mechanical aptitudes because you, there are repairs to the light station that need to be done. Um, you know, there's painting the docks that uh, they have there. The ones that have docks need to be repaired. Um, we do send people out to, they do send people out to help you uh, with the bigger stuff. But the routine maintenance of a house uh, and the buildings and the ground need to be maintained. So you have to have that kind of background. Um, the training is there uh, for, you know, weather weather and environmental sort of stuff. But the uh, the education is not, uh, you know, it's, it's not as critical as, as finding the people that are healthy, fit, and want to live the lifestyle. Right. Because, and I guess too, with the, the weather reports and, and that you need to have, it's not as though you don't need to be a meteorologist, but you would need to have some basic knowledge, I would think. You do. Yes. You do have to have basic knowledge. You do have to have some mariner skills. Um, you know, um, it's, uh, you do get the training. They do provide you with the training for it. Yeah. But you do have to have, you know, you do have to understand, understand weather patterns and, and that sort of thing. But again, the training is there right now. They're just looking for for people that uh, are interested in the job. And is there a, an amount of time, do people people doing this job, do they stick to it for a long time, or is there an amount of time that's kind of the, the norm for being a lighthouse keeper? Uh, there are, it is, it, it actually, there's quite a few that stay uh, quite a long period of time. We do have some that are second generation there, um, that, uh, you know, they grew up on the lighthouse, and now they're lighthouse keepers, uh, they're, Parents have retired and moved on, and uh, they're the lightkeepers there. There is husband and wife teams that work up um, in these areas. Um, it is. It seems to be once you're there, your um, people that they do get are pretty. Uh, they've been there for a while, and they. Uh, and so it's not a, a job that uh, is sort of migratory, where you just take it for a little while, and the and that the ones that get up there actually pretty uh, enjoy it fairly well. All right. Uh, if someone's hearing this and wants to learn more or is interested in it, do they go to the Canadian uh, Coast Guard website or where do they learn more? Well, this is one of our problems is the Canadian Coast Guard. Unfortunately, the website for the Canadian Coast Guard doesn't show it. There's only one at this point. We have, They only have permission to put it on um, the Government of Canada website for uh, GC jobs. Um, so it's a very, uh, that is one of the problems we're having is that, uh, you know, with today's social media, it's hard to get the get the word out. And uh, right now, they only have permission to put it on this website. And it's, uh, you know, as the government works, they have a hard time getting permission to uh, to put it on other websites and uh, to do other types of uh, advertising for it. Actually, uh, the Coast Guard's own research shows that only 20% of the lightkeepers were recruited from seeing an ad on the government website. Um, but we do have... Uh, you know, it is up there, and it, it is there. You go to Government of Canada, GC Jobs, um, and uh, hopefully you can find it. I've actually, in the last couple of weeks, had a couple dozen calls uh, and emails from people looking for, I can't find it, where do I find it, and we've uh, we've patched the link onto them sort of thing. Um, you can phone the Coast Guard um, and ask them, and they will hopefully guide you to where it is. Uh, uh, the Coast Guard's in Victoria. You can phone them there. I don't have the number offhand. But, uh, That's all right. I'm sure people uh, people can figure that out. Uh, Barry, we'll yeah. leave it there. We're out of time. But thank okay. you so much. Uh, very interesting to learn a bit more about that. And hopefully, if uh, people are hearing this and interested, uh, they'll get in touch. But thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Well, thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, after the LNG Canada project was announced, and there was a lot of fanfare announcing that, the $40 billion liquefied natural gas plant announcement, Insights West did a poll to ask people what they think about it. And the results show a lot of support for the project. Let's bring in Steve Mossop. He is the president of Insights West, and he joins us on the line now. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, were you surprised at all by the amount of support uh, that this poll shows when it comes to that uh, big project? Very surprised. You know, British Columbians are notorious for not supporting uh, projects. And, you know, if you look at our history of, of polling, we've, we've polled dozens and dozens of times on various uh, initiatives that uh, the various provincial governments have uh, undertaken. And we found that uh, the overall level of opposition has been really uh, over 50% for the most part. If you look at uh, Northern Gateway and you look at uh, uh, Trans Mountains and, and you look at other you know, fracking initiatives, for example, we've, we've seen a long history. This is different. We have 62% support and 33% strong reason. It's far higher than what we've ever seen. And does it give you any idea as to why perhaps, because even in the past there hasn't been that strong of support for LNG. Did you get an idea as to why perhaps public opinion has changed? Yeah, we, we do tend to look at positive and negative side of each argument, whether it's bike lanes or uh, a pipeline or something else built in, in the backyard. It's uh, uh, In this case, we looked at uh, about a series of eight different things on the positive and on the negative side as well. And, and overall, we see the positives outweighing the negatives by about 20 to 30 percentage points. So, for example, um, you know, yes, we know it will create jobs. We have 90 percent support that it will create jobs. Uh, 90% that it will create capital investment, uh, about 86% that it supports overall economic growth in BC. So you get the gist of uh, the arguments on the plus side. And on the negative side, uh, dependence on fossil fuels and negative impact on CO2 emissions, uh, risk of a spill, those kinds of uh, arguments generate opposites or sorry, agreement of only about 60%, whereas the, the positives are created in the 90%. So that's why in this particular case, we have uh, a pretty massive differential when it comes to support. And the people that were polled in this or that were asked the questions, was it people throughout the province? It is throughout the province. And that was the other interesting thing. We didn't see any regional differences. Usually we do. That uh, Metro Vancouver residents seem to be more opposed because it's, again, not really in their, uh, in their immediate uh, vicinity. But, uh, and we didn't see that this time around. We saw massive support across the province. And should note as well that the poll was done before we saw the uh, the gas line rupture uh, north of Prince George. Do you think that might have changed things? It might have changed it a little bit. I mean, it is listed as a concern, the risk of an LNG spill at 64%. So uh, probably would have a bit of an impact, but I'm not sure that it would have been a massive one. Because in this particular case, it looks like you know there's not a lot of talk about the environmental damage. It's really... Uh, the inconvenience that we have to turn down our thermostat. So it didn't seem to tug at the heartstrings, I think, of, of British Columbians as far as a negative uh, disaster.
Right. Uh, the the numbers, though, are, are interesting. Like you said, uh, looking at, at the people that were questioned here throughout the province and very high numbers in the, I think you mentioned this, the 90% uh, saying it will create new jobs. Uh, but even the, the numbers that are in opposition saying uh, that it will promote further dependence on fossil fuels, that'll have a negative impact on, on CO2, uh, those numbers polling in the 60s. So even though there are people clearly with those concerns, but but not nearly as high as, as those saying it's a positive thing. Yeah, it's really almost a trade-off. Uh, you know, we'll get jobs. Yes, there is a negative side of uh, producing CO2 emissions and our dependency overall on fossil fuels. But I think maybe this time around, the hype of the number of jobs and the magnitude is perhaps something that tipped people uh, to support more so than in the past. Uh, do you think it's also uh, one of the reasons perhaps too, although maybe not because Northern Gateway, as you said, there was uh, plenty of opposition to that, uh, that we're talking about a project in a more remote part of the province rather than a pipeline that's going to be ending in a very popular, populated part of the province? I think so. I, th- I think the other factor is that it really, despite you know years and years of lobbying, it really came about fairly quickly, at least in the minds of uh, British Columbia residents, you know, kind of just, it was announced, whereas the pipelines... Uh, it was daily in the news, and there's there lots of angst and lots of people opposed throughout the process. In this case, the speed in which it was announced and the lack of really any uh, visible opposition, I think, also created an environment where people were more accepting. And and do you think, too, I mean, it's one thing for people to physically go and protest something and to be outspoken. Uh, there's not the same amount of people. It's not, the, it's not as though we see the counter to that, the people who are in support physically show up to support something. Uh, is it different, though, when you're talking to somebody on the phone or you are, you're, you're answering a poll? Uh, you're not putting your face out there, your name out there. Uh, can people, do you think, be a bit more honest? Uh, yeah, the silent majority... Uh, really can have a voice because we hear the vocal minority in, in many of those instances, uh, the visible vocal minority. And uh, that's, uh, you know, as a pollster, I like to say that that's really the benefit of, of doing what we do is you really get the sense of those people that, you know, aren't as vocal, but they re- do, do have an opinion. And it was interesting to find, too, very high support, I guess people, too, saying that, that they're looking forward to or supporting it because of the, the tax revenue or the revenues that will then be spent on, on things like health care and education. Yeah, in this case, at 78% overall, we didn't see the same height of support when it came to the tax revenue for, for say, Kinder Morgan. For It's the same argument, but for some reason it didn't stick as much. If I remember the right, the numbers were about 15 points below that. But it's the same principle. So this case uh, seems to have resonated more. And then the other factor that jumped out that was maybe uh, not present in the other uh, instances of energy projects is the, the fact that it will lead to strong relationships with our Asian neighbours. Interesting findings, uh, definitely. Uh, Steve, we'll leave it there. I know people can go uh, to your website if they want to learn more or see more about the uh, poll results. Uh, we are out of time, though. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. You're welcome, my so we revisit a story that goes back to 1982, and it involved a plane crash in Little Bitterroot Lake. And with the local connection being that the victim, the woman who died in that crash, was a woman from Vancouver by the name of Diane Babcock. We're going to bring in a reporter who covered it at the time. But first, the reason we're talking about this today is because the survivor who disappeared after the crash has broken his silence and told his story to Dateline. Now, here's a small bit of that to interview uh, with Jerry Ambrosak speaking with Keith Morrison. When people say, what is this story about? 
I mean, some people probably see it as a crime story. Some people see it as a love story. How do you see it? Well, it's definitely a love story. Really, what, how it started, it was just two innocent kids in high school fell in love and did something unthinkable, something foolish, and we ended up eloping. We made a crazy plan, planned it for months. We eloped, and unfortunately, a tragic accident happened, and Diane ended up drowning, and I went into shock and lost basically out of my mind and took off and spent the next 24 years in Texas trying to recover and slowly get back to becoming a productive citizen. Uh, that's Jerry Ambrosak speaking about this, telling his story for the first time. He disappeared for 24 years following that crash. Uh, let's bring in Margot Harper, who was a reporter who covered this at the time. Margot, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Jill. What do you think when you hear uh, those words, when you hear the voice of Jerry Ambrosak? Well, it, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible because, um, you know, this is a story that, uh, that I covered uh, along with a number of other reporters uh, 36 years ago. And, um, you know, I think until 2006 when, when Jerry was arrested in Texas, uh, many of us uh, wondered, uh, you know, frequently over the years, remembered the story and had a profound impact on me as a young reporter and wondered what had happened to him. And uh, when he surfaced, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was another chapter in an incredible saga, but he, he spoke to no one uh, until, uh, until Keith uh, and his producer were able to land this interview. So, um, you know, watching, uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people who remembered the story, watching the Dateline documentary the other night was, was an incredible insight into, um, you know, the, 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 the motivation and the character um, and, you know, the, the, the person that Jerry Ambrosek was, and he'd been really a man of mystery until that point. And going back to when this happened, what was the thought or what, what, what do you remember about covering this fatal crash? And what, what was the theory at that point? Well, it, it began, uh, I believe it was August 22nd, 1982. I was a um, cub reporter at the Vancouver Sun. I was just recently out of journalism school. It was my first real journalism job. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it began as, a, as a, just a very mysterious disappearance. These two uh, teenagers uh, took off from Penticton on a summer afternoon. They filed a flight plan that said they were heading to Vancouver. And they disappeared uh, pretty much off the face of the earth uh, and thus began a search uh, which went on for weeks. Uh, absolutely no trace of them or the plane. Um, the theory I was covering it, um, they had both been John Oliver High School students. Um, the theory surfaced that they had um, uh, potentially eloped together. Um, there was some suggestion that their parents did not approve of their relationship. Um, Mr. Babcock uh, denied that in an interview with me at the time, Diane's father. Um, uh, but there were all kinds of theories circulating uh, at the time. And, and, and then, I believe it was about two weeks after they disappeared, um, Jerry's best friend, a fellow named Tom, locally in Vancouver, uh, got a call from New York. And it was Jerry, and he said that uh, they had tried to land the plane at night on Little Bitterroot Lake in Montana, uh, and they uh, had gone terribly wrong. The plane had flipped. Um, he'd been able to get out, but Diane had gone down with the plane. So thus began um, the search for the aircraft, which was a Cessna 150. Um, and I um, traveled there for the Vancouver Sun the day um, I actually arrived the day the plane came up. 
Hmm. And he disappeared and for 24 years lived this double life. Uh, was the idea, as, as things started to come together and, and he made contact with the friend, was there suspicion that uh, there was wrongdoing on his part? Well, you know, it was unclear. I mean, he, I don't know um, if you saw the Dateline documentary, but he, at the, in the phone calls, uh, you know, said that he had wanted to disappear and Diane had kind of tagged along. Um, it was, uh, you know, when the plane came out of the water, um, you know, it was just tremendously tragic. Uh, she was young. She had her whole life ahead of her. She had been a thought that the um, that the seatbelt had malfunctioned. Um, it, it, it was in perfect working order, although it was kind of turned around on her. So and the plane was upside down in the water in the dark, um, you know, but 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 Jerry Ambrosic had managed to get out of the plane he did also grab a um, a bag with uh, several thousand dollars and clothing in it. He was seen by um, those living around the lake, uh, drying out his clothing uh, the next morning on the shores of the lake before he took off. Um, and there was, you know, there were many, many questions about what had happened that night. And there was also a question about why he ran. Um, and, uh, you know, he was clearly in shock, uh, but it was unclear if there had been no wrongdoing, you know, why he had run. Now, his story is that he was just devastated. He felt he had nothing to live for. Um, he couldn't imagine coming home. He felt he would be blamed for the accident. Um, you know, his story was that it was just a, tra- a, a tragic crash and that he had miscalculated as a young pilot, as to how long he had before the plane um, sank. But their plan had clearly been, um, and this was borne out when, when the plane was brought up, and they, they brought out of the, the, the hatch of the plane, they brought a life raft out, um, survival gear, um, uh, uh, disguises, wigs, hair dye. Um, and their plan had been to ditch the plane, and this was not a float plane. This was a plane with wheels. And let it sink, swim to shore, or get on the raft, and then uh, basically travel. This is according to Jerry. Travel down through the states, cross into Mexico, and head to South America, and disappear and reinvent themselves. Um, sort of a crazy plan that could only be cooked up by a couple of teenagers. Um, and it, you know, it went terribly wrong. Uh, d- does this answer your question? Seeing this talking or seeing this interview now. In terms of what really happened, mm-hmm. well, no, I mean, I, I you know, I think that uh, those who, who who did see the documentary and it is online right now uh, on the Dateline NBC site, the two-hour documentary, and it's a tremendous piece of journalism. It really is. All credit to Keith and his crew. Um, it, you know, it it uh, you know, Jerry Ambrosic ended up living in Texas under an assumed name. Uh, Michael Lee Smith for 24 years, uh, and he ended up in the computer business uh, successfully at a home, had a fancy car, um, had been married, um, and um, he was actually turned in by um, uh, a former girlfriend who who knew the real story. Um, and watching the documentary, um, you know, I... Uh, uh, I would have to say that, uh, you know, like many great stories, um, you know, you kind of peel away one layer and then there's another layer and another layer. And 
Um, you know, it's not really clear to me um, what really happened. I, I heard Jerry's story, but I think, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the Babcock certainly, after Jerry was arrested in Texas, he was returned to Montana. He faced charges of negligent homicide. Um, those charges were eventually stayed, and he did a small amount of time awaiting trial. But I know it was the Babcock's position that um, he was never he never really faced justice. Um, and, you know, it's not as a reporter um, for 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 me to judge. Um, but I will say that I, I I still have a lot of questions as someone who was involved in the story about what really happened that night on the lake. And I expect that uh, the Babcocks probably Diane's family probably do as well. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Margo, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. My pleasure. Well, another date that hopefully is on your calendar is October 20th. Civic elections taking place. We've been talking about several of the races on this program and things got a little strange this past week when looking at police investigations into allegations of vote buying in some areas and also some nastiness in some of the races in Vancouver. Let's bring in Mike Klassen. He is a columnist, a contributor with the Vancouver Courier and has been following these races as well. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Jill. Good morning. What are your thoughts? We'll start with the police investigations, because from what I can tell and people I've talked to, we've never actually dealt with something like this. And it was on Friday that we learned in Vancouver, in Burnaby, uh, in Surrey, there are police investigations for various allegations of vote tampering, uh, vote buying. What is your take on that? Uh, it is very interesting. I, I confess I don't remember there being um, anything quite like this with an actual, um, you know, giving of money. You know, we've seen things in the past around uh, uh, B.C. and Canadian elections where, for example, you know, people have been encouraged to sign up for uh, a candidate or an ele- uh, a party and, um, you know, people are actually getting those memberships paid for by a third party. I think many people might remember the story of Mabel Elmore, um, the uh, MLA, stapling the $20 bills to the NDP memberships, uh, uh, the, the video that was caught that back in 2009. Um, but this is uh, a little bit different where you have an outside group that um, uh, evidently have uh, a bunch of money and feel as though they want to be able to get a bunch of uh, candidates elected in these various uh, elections. I'm not, I, I doubt they'll be terribly successful, uh, but they um, certainly are a, a different wrinkle on, on this year's election. And, and one of, as you say, many concerns that we're sort of seeing uh, with some of the new rules in place. And talk a bit about the new rules as well and how that's changed things in that a lot of ballots are almost like short novels with the number of people that are running and trying to get those seats on the various councils. How do you see that playing out or how how things have changed because of the new rules? Uh, Well, it could go a couple of different ways. So uh, specifically, Vancouver has this um, ballot that I actually voted in in the advanced election uh, day yesterday at Vancouver City Hall. There was virtually nobody uh, at the hall. I went in the afternoon with my wife. We walked right in. We were in and out within five minutes. So um, uh, that was a good day to vote. Um, The the number of candidates we've seen on the ballot in Vancouver specifically really stems from a, a fundamental problem. I mean, first of all, there are very few uh, incumbents running, 
And so people saw the field open, and certainly when you, when you don't have an incumbent mayor and an incumbent team of candidates with Vision Vancouver, uh, the people see an opportunity to run. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of sort of fractiousness among different groups deciding to set up their own parties because they, they apparently can't get along. And, um, and then I think we've just let the bar be far too low. Uh, in 1996, there was an unusual election where we had the famous sort of uh, Zippy the Chimp and Mr. Peanuts and the long list of uh, names. And it was because there was virtually no barriers. You just had to sign up. So they added a, uh, a requirement for 25 signatures uh, from you know, residents of the, uh, of the city and a $100 uh, feed, which, uh, which is held in trust. I think they should raise that number. Uh, I proposed this actually in a a column I wrote for Huffington Post a few years ago that it should be $500 held in trust and uh, it should be a hundred signatures. And, and I, and people kind of go, wow, you know, that's a lot higher, but you know what, if, if you're trying to get elected in the city with 60 to 70,000 people, if you can't get a hundred people in this, in, in the community to support your candidacy or even give you a few bucks each, so you can actually set aside $500. And remember you do get that money back from the city um, after a number of months. So I just think that would sort of weed out a lot of the, you know, the fringe candidates. I don't want to call them out by name, but there's there's far too many people on that ballot that have really no business running for council. Uh, what was it like then, since you have gone to the advance poll? Because uh, th- th- there are also a number of people, uh, not just running for mayor, a number of people running for council uh, as well. Well, when I looked at the ballot, I, one of two things happened. In Vancouver, they decided to randomize. And I actually supported the randomization, but not the way the, the city did it. I thought that, the, that uh, we had seen sort of perennial ABCD candidates always getting on a council. Um, uh, I'm a K, and I ran in 2011. So I sort of thought it was a little bit unfair um, that, that we would see that election after election. So I said, you know, these are optical scanner machines. They could probably have a barcode. Anyway, it was, I was kind of looking at it from a different angle. But when you look at the ballot now, you have really this huge long list of names. It's, it's, a, it's an alphabet soup. And um, so people are either going to go in there and vote slate, you know, so they're traditional parties that they know, COPE, you know, Vision, MPA, what have you. Or they're going to, you know, really um, uh, look at lists of independents. Or um, there's a high probability that they will be taking the recommendation of the Vancouver District Labor Council, who have been hugely involved in this election because uh, the rules, uh, as they were rewritten last year by the province, uh, allow the unions to kind of uh, run complete parallel campaigns. Uh, which which raises a whole other uh, issue and number of questions, and that's kind of been what's behind uh, some nastiness uh, that's been happening between uh, one of the NPA volunteers and the campaign manager uh, for Kennedy Stewart, who's running for mayor, and uh, threats of well, threats to, to take down tweets and such. What do you what do you make of that? Well, I, uh, Mike Jagger um, is the person who recorded the call with uh, camp, uh, Kennedy Stewart's campaign manager, where he was essentially kind of, you know, he was pretty threatening in his language. And um, and as we sort of heard this weekend, uh, Kennedy Stewart is quite fine with that kind of bullying. Um, but uh, what that really came down to was... Um, uh, Mike ended up uh, sort of suggesting that people were working on Kennedy's campaign when um, I think a more accurate representation of what's going on is um, the unions are actually running their own campaign supporting Kennedy. 
And I know that probably sounds a little confusing uh, to listeners, but the fact is, is that there's a full-fledged campaign, or they've already done a, a, a huge lit drop in the city, 100,000 flyers. Uh, they've hired full-time staff to run campaigns. Um, they have um, been doing all sorts of uh, campaign activities, uh, uh, organizing, uh, door canvassing, and what have you, all in favor of uh, uh, Professor Stewart and a, and a bunch of other um, uh, candidates that they've endorsed. So my biggest concern about this, and I know when you interviewed Max Cameron this week on, on Global News, Canada does have a, a history of free and fair elections. Right now, the elections don't seem terribly fair. And if, you, uh, if, if Kennedy Stewart and these candidates sweep council uh, and park forward the school board, there are going to be some questions about legitimacy, and that makes it very hard for them to govern. It also, I think, runs the risk of people hear this and this nastiness and the phone call. And yes, he, he recorded it. He likely didn't tell the campaign manager that he was recording the call. But it's also, I mean, and George Affleck, who's a Vancouver City Councillor who's not running again, I think made a good point about this, saying that if he personally called everybody on Twitter who perhaps tweeted something that wasn't 100%. Maybe the semantics was off. Maybe it was a bit of BS. If he personally called everybody, that's all he would have time to do. And questioned, is this really the way you deal with something, especially on Twitter, if you don't like the way something is worded? Well, um, Kennedy Stewart has been running a front runners campaign for a long time. They want nothing to go wrong. I mean, I was the first person to write about the questions about the dem evictions in South Burnaby. You know, had all of these poor people kicked out of their apartments. The buildings are all uh, down to splinters. They're not, still knocking them down like crazy in, uh, in the Metrotown area. And the member of parliament whose office is just a couple blocks away from there was doing nothing about it. So I asked those questions. And I know that they have um, not wanted to talk about that. And, um, and on this particular issue of having uh, the unions helping their campaign, uh, indirectly or not, um, uh, they also do not want to talk about it. So I think that they're trying to do this. They're just trying to squelch um, any kind of discussion during the election uh, campaign about these things happening. Uh, do you think there's a, a legitimate concern that voters will be turned off by this, that uh, will decide they don't want to get involved or uh, won't go to the polls because uh, they just figure it's more of the same? You know, gosh, I really I hope that's not the case. I, I, I know that some people um, see voting as really an important civic duty and it makes them feel good to go into the ballot box and, and, and mark their ballot. Um, but I know that there are people who are getting increasingly cynical about um, how things uh, are being run in the city, and, 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 and now we're seeing problems with how our elections are being run. That could really, really undermine um, the faith in that system, and it, trust me, um, it, we cannot afford to lose the faith in, in our democratic uh, system here, and I sure hope that people still get out and vote, um, take a look at the candidates, uh, and, and give some time and thought to uh, going out there. But, you know, uh, history has shown that the numbers are usually pretty low, and, uh, and I'm really concerned uh, this is going to push it even lower. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully not. Uh, which one are you watching most, Vancouver, or are there other races that have caught your attention? Uh, oh, for sure. There's other ones. I mean, what's going on in Surrey is just uh, mind-boggling. Um, it, it really is uh, uh, quite a pivotal election. 
Uh, we saw the, you know, that the Surrey first group kind of blow apart. Um, so we've seen a lot of fractiousness there, um, a lot of really nasty uh, politics. I mean, when crime is in, in public safety are big issues, that it makes it for a very emotional uh, election period. And in Burnaby, I, I got to say, it's just so interesting to watch what's going on between Derek Corrigan and Mike Hurley. Mike Hurley, the person that was endorsed by the, the unions there as well, uh, to try and take out um, the five-term mayor uh, who is sort of stubbornly wanting to stay on in spite of you know, his record. Now, I mean, some would say that uh, Corrigan has done a good job on the fundamentals, but boy, oh boy, when it came to poor people living in South Burnaby, he sure made a lot of excuses while those buildings were coming down. All right. Well, we will continue uh, watching those uh, races as well. Mike Klassen, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, Jill. Have a great day.